All right, in chapter 9, we covered chapter 9 last week, and uh, we saw that Jehu was anointed the king of Israel just as it was prophesied, and it was prophesied that he would strike down the house of his master, Jehoram, uh, and the, so that the Lord was going to use Jehu to avenge uh, all of his prophets and all of his servants that had been killed at the hand of Jezebel and at the hand of Ahab. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his mission was basically to, ju- to execute judgment on Ahab's household and Ahab's family members. Remember, if you're not familiar, you're just joining us. Ahab, his wife was Jezebel. Ahab was a, was a wicked king. He led the Israelites farther away from the Lord. Je- uh, um, they, were, they were led away from the Lord initially, and then he led them even farther into the worship of Baal, and he began building temples for Baal, and he really led them away from their God and into Baal worship and idol worship. Um, before the close of chapter 9, we saw that Jehu had taken the life of Jehoram, who was the reigning king in Israel. We saw that the reigning king of Judah, which was Ahaziah, was also killed by Jehu. And we also saw that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, was killed. And uh, for most of us, as we study this, at that point, we're going right on. Finally, he's, 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 t- he's taking Israel back. He's, he's weeding out all the evil, and he's getting rid of all that stuff. You might want to say, way to go, Jehu. You're, you're bringing judgment. You're doing what the Lord has called you to do. You're bringing judgment on the house of Omri and the, and the descendants of Ahab. You're, you're right there where you need to be. And praise the Lord for him standing up to these, to these heathens. And it, it appears that he's off to a good start. Well, let's see how his finish is tonight. Second uh, Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, Choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. I find it a little bit strange that Ahab had 70 sons. That seems kind of a lot to me. Obviously, he had a lot of wives or mistresses, and we read there that he wasn't even raising his own sons. They're being raised uh, by the elders there. And and Jehu kind of is on, he's he's killed the the standing king of of Israel, and now he's kind of, he's taking charge, if you will. He basically issues a challenge to them, and it's, it's a little bit of a logical challenge. He says, look, I'm taking over. I'm taking over Israel, and if it's, you, you, got, you have a fortified city, you have men there, you have Ahab's sons, why don't you get together, you anoint a king, and, and we'll do battle over it to find out what's going to take place. So he issues this challenge, and it, like I said, it's a bit logical, and it's, it's the way that they operated back then, and you know, he, he kind of assumed that they would revolt against him, and he issues this challenge out there, and let's see what they say in verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid, and they said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? So they're afraid of, of Jehu. After all, Jehu had just killed the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And they're saying, how could we possibly do battle against him? How, how is it that we could come up against him? I, I don't know what we're going to do. So they, they, they formulate this plan. I know, let's just surrender. Let's just tell him that we're his servants and we'll serve him. And we don't want to fight him. We're not going to anoint a king. We're not going to do that. We're just going to let, we're going to serve him and see what he says. Verse 5. And he who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, those who reared the sons, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. We will do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. So they're basically waving the white flag of surrender. They're basically telling Jehu, look, 
we're yours. We belong to you. We don't want to fight. We don't need to lose anybody here. We, 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 you're probably going to beat us anyway, so we're just going to be your servants here. That's, that's where they've kind of come, come to. And I wonder what Jehu thought when he received this message. You've got to kind of wonder, is he thinking, is it really that easy? Are, are they really giving up? Or, or could this be a little bit of a trick? Could, could they be just trying to, you know, get me to lower my guard and get me to relax a little bit? Or, or are they really giving up that easy? I know. I know, Jehu says. I'm going to write him a letter back. Let's write him a letter back. And let's see what the letter says in verse 6. And he wrote a second letter to them, saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. It's pretty smart of him, rather violent of him, but, but pretty smart of him. He says, listen, if you're for me, then I want you to obey me. Listen, I know that the sons of Ahab are going to challenge my throne. I know that they're going to challenge me as king. So here's what I want you to do. If you're really for me, take their heads. Take their heads of your men, and by tomorrow, bring them to me at Jezreel. This way, he could be sure it would be a, a black or white. Without this, without this uh, statement to them, he's unsure. Are they, are, what are they trying to pull? Is, is this for real? But obviously, if they show up with the heads of Ahab's sons, then he could say, well, they're, they're obviously serious about being for me. They've, they've taken out the enemy. Remember, in our day, we would look at this and go, wow, that's pretty violent. That's, that, is that really something that, I mean, Rob, this is Bible study. We're in church. Don't you know you're, you're talking about killing people and cutting off their head? But that was what was common in that day. And it still is in other parts of the, of the Middle East and other, other countries. It can still be rather common. But this was common because as Jehu was taking the throne, he had to wipe out anybody that would oppose the throne. Otherwise, they would be opposing him in his position. So whenever a new king would come in from a new family, he would usually wipe out the family of the previous king to protect his position and protect his thrones. So they're issued an ultimatum. If you're for us, this is what I want you to do. Take care of those 70 sons and bring their heads to me. Let's see what they do. Verse, latter part of verse 6. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was, when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons, slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. They did it. Now, you could make a lot of jokes here, saying they were just trying to get ahead. Or, or I mean, you could do all kinds of stuff with that. But I'm not going to do that. They, they did what they, they, they laid out. They, he laid out the ultimatum to them, and they, they responded. The leaders of Samaria were so afraid of Jehu. They were so afraid of what he would do. They slaughtered the 70 sons of Ahab, and they put their heads in a basket and hauled it off to Jezreel. It's kind, of, it's kind of surreal. It's kind of morbid for us to think of. We would never consider, we're way too civilized for something like that in this country, but yet this is what happens in other places. And they did it. Verse 8, And a messenger came and told him, that's Jehu, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. Now what do we do? There they are, they're out front. What do we do with them? He said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gates until morning. Jehu gives the command, he says, pile them up right outside the gate. Two piles, one on each side of the gate. Just go ahead and pile them up out there. Everyone came in and out of the city through this gate. Everyone would walk by this. Everyone would see this. It, it, there, there was no protecting the children. There was no protecting the women in this. They were just, just pile them up there. Let, let everyone see it. It was a public display that would highlight God's judgment on the worship of Baal. 
That's what he was trying to do. And the family that initiated, in, on, on Ahab's family, the family that initiated that worship of Baal into Israel, he's trying to do a public display of God's judgment on that. He wants everyone to look at that and go, oh boy, that's not a good thing. God's really judged them severely and that family severely. Two piles of 35 skulls would have gotten my attention. Wouldn't it have yours? I, I think that would get my attention and if I was happened to be walking by there. And the people start talking about it. They start wondering, what's going on? What is, is it the judgment? When they see this, you can't help but wonder, are they thinking, oh no, Jehu's gone too far. Maybe he's done too much. Maybe if, if this is the way God judged them and we've done that to them, maybe we're in trouble. Maybe we're next. I mean, you know, we, we were kind of Baal worshipers too. You know, we, we kind of went along with the crowd and what everybody else was doing. Maybe we're the ones that could be next. You can imagine that kind of topic starting or that kind of conversation. So the next morning, Jehu addresses the people in verse 9. It says this, so it was in the morning, that he went out and he stood and he said to all the people, you are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men, and his close acquaintances, or close friends, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. With all the people concerned about God's judgment coming upon them, with all the people wondering, Ahab makes two important points that morning. Number one, he says, you're righteous. You're righteous. In other words, I did this. I, I, I'm, the one that over, I'm the one that killed the king of Israel, not you guys. The, the, the blood, if there's blood, it's blood is on my end. It's my doing. Yes, I conspired against my master. Yes, I'm, I'm executing judgment on the house of Ahab. But then he says, who killed these? Their own people killed those. He said, I didn't do that. Their own, their own people are doing that. And the second thing he said, which is very important, is the, it was, the, was the Lord's word is simply coming to pass. Elijah told us this would happen. Elijah told us this was going to take place. God's word is, is only coming to pass just like it was foretold. The word of the Lord will always come to pass. God had promised to judge the house of Ahab, and now he's doing it. Several generations later, it's taking place. Why did it take so long? I believe he was giving them a chance to repent. I believe they had all ample opportunity to turn back. Generation after generation. After, after all, King Ahaziah, the king of Judah, that was killed by Jehu, was uh, Ahab's grandson. So there's at least three generations there, two generations afterwards, that could have repented, but they didn't. They kept worshiping and serving Baal. Verse 11 tells us that Jehu's victims, talks about the people that he killed, it says they stretched beyond the house of Ahab as he killed all of Ahab's close friends, his priests, and his generals. This is the very first clue in Ahab's life that I believe that his motives are not pure. Because what we don't read is while he was supposed to be executing judgment on the house of Ahab, it doesn't say anything about killing Ahab's friends or his close friends. Generals, maybe military strategy. I could understand that. But it does, his priests, certainly priests of, of Baal, I could understand that. But it says his close friends there. Until now, he's done God's will. But God never told him to kill all of these other people. We don't see that taking place. The close friends, like I said, maybe. I believe at this point, Jehu is becoming a little too bloodthirsty. I believe he's becoming a little too bloodthirsty. And he really doesn't have the Lord's interests at heart. Instead, he has his own interests at heart. 
He's trying to promote himself. He kind of likes the man he's becoming. He kind of likes the fact that everybody's afraid of him. He kind of likes that people are surrendering to him. He kinda, he's kinda, it's building him up a little bit. It's becoming more about Jehu than it is about the Lord. You see, when he was supposed to execute judgment for the Lord, it was supposed to be to bring glory to the Lord's name. And I think now the attention is being drawn to Jehu, and he kind of likes that. So he leaves Jezreel, and he heads to Samaria. Look at verse 12. And he arose, and he departed. He went to Samaria. On the way at Beth Aked of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We're the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the, of the queen mother. That was Jezebel. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Aked, 42 men, and he left none of them. Jehu's on his way to Samaria. He runs across this group of men, and he asks them a simple question. Who are you? And they say, well, we're the, we're the, we're the, we're the brothers of uh, Ahaziah. We're, we're, the, we're coming to see the queen, Jezebel. We're coming to see them. That was probably not the right thing to say to Jehu, right? Because they probably didn't know that Jehu had already killed Ahaziah and Jezebel. They probably didn't know that Facebook, Twitter wasn't around yet. They couldn't get that information out like it would be out today. They probably hadn't heard that. They're coming in thinking, we're brothers of the king. <laughs> not anymore, you're not. You're not going to make it out alive. So he, he takes them. He kills them. Some people here have suggested that this is another example of Jehu going a little bit too far in executing God's judgment. I'm not so sure I agree because remember who Ahaziah was. He was Ahab's grandson. So he's still within the family of Ahab. He's still doing what the Lord had called him to do. Now, also, please remember, and I'm sure that all of Ahab's family were idolaters. It's not like any of them were serving the Lord. God wouldn't do that. It's not like, it's not like a generational sin where they're, they're, they're just getting killed here because they're, uh, because they're who their father is or who their grandfather is. It's not as if God is judging an entire household simply on one person. Each person's going to stand on their own, and their offspring are just as guilty. They're doing the same things. Now, the consequence of being in that family is that's what you were taught to do, and you continue doing it. That's the consequence of being in the family. But they're not being judged for what their grandfather did. They're being judged for the way that they're, they're living their lives and for the family there. Now, look at verse 15. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him, and he said to him, is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained of Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. If you're taking notes in your Bible, write the, write the passage, Jeremiah chapter 35. That's going to give you a little bit of insight onto who these people are. Although Jeremiah is prophesying under King Josiah into the future, Jeremiah is remembering the Rechabites, and it gives us some insight into who Jehonadab and the Rechabites were. While most of Israel is out worshiping Baal under the leadership of Ahab and the, and the, following, the kings that followed him, there was a group of people called the Rechabites. They were the sons of Rechab, and they were a reform movement. They were trying to bring back 
bring Israel back to holiness, bring Israel back to purity. Uh, they were trying to uh, restore purity and morality to the northern kingdom. They were the, the remnant, if you will, within the northern kingdom that was trying to bring Israel back to the Lord. Uh, they lived a nomadic life. They wandered in the wilderness. They didn't drink any wine. They re- relied solely on the Lord for their sustenance, their sustenance, their food, everything. They, would re- they didn't grow anything. They would rely on the Lord. But they were trying to get the word out to bring the people or to turn the people back to the Lord and turn the people away from Baal. From, from Baal. Now, you can imagine, if you were Jehonadab, a son of Rechab, you're pretty excited about this guy Jehu that's coming into town. What's he doing? He's wiping out all the Baal worshippers. He's wiping out the family that brought Baal worship. He's, he's, he's trying to purify the nation Israel. That's got to be pretty exciting. He's cutting down the house of Ahab, and he's, he's attacking what, those things that are against what the Lord would have them do. Jehu is cleaning up the house of Israel, if you would. He's, he's attacking the, non, the, the, the idol worshipers. He's, he's trying to bring Israel back, to, to bring them back to the Lord. He's trying to, he has this appearance of, I want to bring Israel back to God. Now, Jehu, on the other hand, he's hungry for the approval of this guy. He wants his approval. He wants, to, he wants to be connected with them. He wants to be part of this movement that is trying to bring Israel back to this holiness. He wants to bring them back there. So what we have is Jehinadab. He wants to clean up Israel. Jehu is cleaning up Israel. And now we're going to see that they're kind of united together. Although we're going to find that Jehu really doesn't have Israel's best interest at heart. Because he's not really going to go as far as he should. Now, I don't usually say much about politics, but it sounds an awful like about what's going on in our country right now, doesn't it? With the president that is siding with Christianity, appearing to be cleaning up the country, appearing to do these things. Uh, but is he really a believer in Jesus Christ? I don't know the answer to that, nor do I expect you to give me an answer to it. But it's kind of interesting that it, it, it kind of fits there if you, if you, if you take a look at it. <coughs> so they meet. And he has to determine whose side is he on. So Jehu says, are we okay? Whose side are you on? Yes, we're fine. He extends his hand. Come on up. He puts them in the chariot together. As he extends his hand, he brings them up. Now they're riding together, showing this unity, showing this that we're united into into cleaning up Israel, if you will. Jehinadab was probably an honorable man in Israel. And carrying him about with him in his chariot, Jehu endeavored to acquire the public esteem. Jehu must be acting right, for Jehinadab is with them and approves of his conduct, one commentator said. Now in verse 16, we're going to run across the second problem that arises with Jehu when he says, come with me and see my zeal. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. The zeal of Jehu, there's the zeal of anybody, is clearly seen. For the, if you want to know your zeal for the Lord, you're going to see it in your obedience to the Lord. The zeal for the Lord, it's going to be seen in your obedience to, to the Lord. This can be seen, and it reveals that when, when he says it this way, when he says, come and see my zeal for the Lord, do you sense the prideful statement that is? Come, come let me show you what I'm doing for God. I don't see it as a, you know, as a humble man saying, let me show you what the Lord's doing through me. Come let me show you what I'm doing. Let me show you my zeal for God. He was proud of his very own zeal. He was proud of it. He was proud of, the, of, of that he was zealous for the Lord. That he, let me show, I'm, I'm proud of myself for what I'm doing. His mind is not focused on God's glory, on giving God the glory for what's going on, but his mind is focused on, on his own image, 
on how people are seeing him. He's proud of his zeal. His mind's not focused on the Lord. His mind is focused on himself, on who he is becoming. First, we saw him killing people. He wasn't told to kill. And now we see Jehu's pride on full display. Disobedience and pride. They usually don't go together very well with a happy ending. And it's going to be the same case in Jehu's life. Let's see what happens next. Verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people together. He said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Ahab served a little bit. You guys all know Ahab served Baal, right? He served a little. Jehu, I'm going to serve him more than Ahab did. Don't worry, it's a trick. I don't want to ruin the story for you. I just did. (laughs) Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And said to one in, and said to the one in and he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehinadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. So what's he doing? He's pretending to be a Baal worshiper. He's, he's going to set the people up. We're told that he's being deceptive. He's declared a, a huge Baal worship service, if you will. And anybody has to be, the worship of Baal has to be there. All you guys, we need everybody there. It's going to be a big worship service. Get everybody there. And he says, listen, if there's any Christians here, any followers of the Lord, get them out. Make sure, go, go around, make sure there's no, nobody here from the Lord. Nobody here. Make sure there's no secret worshipers. Throw them all out. Look at verse 24. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And he said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. What a plan. It worked perfectly. Let's get them all together. You can imagine the Baal worshippers. Oh, we didn't know he was with us. We thought he was against us. That's cool. Jehu's going to come worship Baal with us. That's pretty cool. Let's, let's have a party. Let's have a festival. And they all come. He's got them all in there. All the Christians, or not Christians, all the followers of the Lord are, are out. And what does he say? Now go kill them all. Don't let anybody come in. Don't let anybody out. And if, you, if anybody gets away, the man that he got away from, I'm going to take his life. So they ended up killing all the temples of Baal. And then when we read it became a refuse dump, it literally means it became a public restroom or a public toilet. That's what it means. That, that's, that's about the most degrading thing that something could become. It's where people went to the bathroom. It was just, it was, it was, that, that's what the temple of Baal became. And for that, you say, oh, that's awesome. Way to go, Jehu. Way to tear, way to tear down that, that, that Baal's temple. Way to, way to, you know, that's right. Get rid of those people. They're just going to bring the people astray. 
he successfully destroyed Baal from Israel. He did it. He did what the Lord called him to do. He's torn down the temple. He's wiped out the people. He's killed all the sons of Ahab. He's successfully destroyed it. But he's had a couple of mishaps along the way. He's been prideful. and He's been disobedient. Now let's come and take a look at the downfall of Jehu in verse 29. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. Jehu, Jehu made great progress in removing Baal worship from Israel. But it tells us here he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Do you remember the sins of Jeroboam? Do you remember what they were back in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 9? It tells us that Jeroboam made for himself and the people of Israel other gods. He made golden calves for them to worship, made images, and they, they literally they said they were casting the Lord behind their back, throwing the Lord over their shoulder. And what, what had taken place at this point, they were, worshiping, they were worshiping God, but they were using these golden calves. The nation had just split. The southern the two tribes have gone to the south. We had the ten tribes in the north, and Jeroboam didn't want the, uh, the northern tribes going down to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid they would, take, they would go back there or they would migrate or integrate with, with, the, with Judah. And so he said, well, we're going to set up our own worship places. We're going to make it more convenient for you so you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. We'll make it easy for you. The sins of Jeroboam, if you remember we talked about this, is simply this. The sins of Jeroboam was the false worship of the true God. The sins of Jeroboam was the false worship of the true God. The sins of Ahab was the worship of a false God. There's a difference. Jeroboam led the people of Israel into false worship of the true God. Still had the name God, still had the name Jehovah or Yahweh, still had the right name, still believing in God. They just began to erect images to represent God, and they failed to go worship God in the way that God had prescribed them to worship in the place that God had prescribed them. They're going to do church their own way, if you will. We can do things our way. We can make things happen the way we want them to happen. We're not going to do it the way that God wants us to do you understand the difference? There's a big difference there. It's important to notice that Israel's demise, as we see them in our study today, started as false worship of the true God. And then it migrated into worship of, the fa- of a false God. It started as false worship of the true God, then it migrated to worshiping false gods. I believe that we have to be careful of that in Christianity today. Because I believe that we can set up idols, we can do things to worship God falsely in our churches, amongst our people today, if we're not careful. We can set up idols for ourselves. I believe there are Christians today who are, worship, who, who are falsely worshiping the true God. They would call themselves Christians, they would look like Christians, they would be in churches, but they find themselves worshiping God, the same God that we would say, but they're doing it falsely. Well, what would that look like? What would that look like if we were to look around some churches today and say, hey, what, what, what would false worship of the true God look like? Today, I believe we'd find it in self-focused worship, where worship is all about you and not about God. It'd be what I called self-focused worship. This is, the worship is, it's, it's not about God, it's not about who he is and what he's done, it's about how I feel. 
It's about what, I, what I'm going to do for God. It's about what, what, I, what I'd like God to do for me. Or, or it's, about, it's, about, it's all about me. It's not about him. I, you've heard me talk about worship songs being I songs or God songs. It, it's, it's a bunch of I songs. The, the, the worship music is all me, 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 me. I feel, I do, I will, I love, I this, I that. It's not about God did, God established, God is almighty, Jesus died. It's not about him and the Lord and the cross. It's all about it's all about. Uh, self-focused worship i think we'd all probably agree that our culture what are we focused on ourself oftentimes if we're not careful we find ourselves focused on ourselves. it's all about what god will do for me we come to god god i want you to fix this god i want you to do this god i want you to heal me god i want you to straighten my life out and it's not god what can i do for you it's all about what can god do for me God, I want, I want you to serve me, God. I, in other words, we come with such a prideful attitude. God, I want you to worship me by doing what I tell you to do and the way that I tell you to do it and when I tell you to do it. And I've got enough faith, so I'm going to tell you what to do, God. That's not how it should go. Worship of God is about him. The focus is who he is, what he's done. It's not about us. Because we can't stand apart from the blood of Jesus Christ before a holy God. None of us can. On our works. We can only stand because we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because our sins are forgiven. Otherwise he couldn't even look upon us. See, Self-worship. I believe is one of those areas where we can find ourselves. Acting like Christians. Talking like Christians. But our life is all about us. And not about him. Number two. I think we see it in churches today. It's, I called it experiential worship. It's where worship is an experience. We want to make it an experience for us. Churches are going to great lengths to make worship become an experience. They're hiring bands, they're having lights, they're smoke machines, they're concerts, they're recording and they're putting big screens up and they're doing all that stuff. All of those things aren't, in, aren't wrong individually. But sometimes when you put it all together, do you know what you have? You have entertainment. Entertainment is not worship. There's a difference between going to church to worship and going to a concert to be entertained. The way that you feel at a concert, at a Christian concert, is not the same way that you should feel when you're worshiping your Lord but in a church setting or in a, in, a, in a home setting or wherever you're at, it's a different feeling. When I, when I go to a concert, I, I expect to be entertained. I want lights, I want shows, I want smoke, I want fire and all that kind of stuff. When I come to church, I want reverence. I want people standing before the Lord, realizing we're standing before our maker. We're giving our God our attention. We're going to raise our hands to him. We're going to lift our voices to him. He, this is all about him. It's not about me. I don't care what kind of day I had. He deserves my worship whether I had a good day or a bad day. He deserves my worship whether I, had, whether I was sinful today or I wasn't so bad. He deserves our worship no matter what kind of day we had. You see, experiential worship is one of those things that if we're not careful, it'll become an idol. Oh, I've got to find a new church. I've got to find a church with a worship team. I've got to have a bigger worship team. I've got to have a better worship service. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I used to go to uh, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. If, if any of you are not familiar with it, at one point it was one of the top five churches, top five largest churches in the country. Uh, I started going there in about 1994, started consistently in about 1997. Uh, the worship team there was absolutely amazing. Every one of them were professional musicians. Unbelievable. Any one of them could have had a career in music outside of church if they so chose to, but they chose to honor the Lord with their gifts. And after we left Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, we moved from the Fort Lauderdale area up to the West Palm Beach area in Florida because of work. I, I, I wanted to find a church that had worship like that. I wanted to find a church that, that was so amazing, so powerful, so moving. And they did it right. They, they, they did it right. They, they, it was big and it was powerful, but it was done right. And I, I went to different churches. You know what I found? Most churches can't do that. Most churches don't have the musicians. 
They don't have the budgets. They don't have the ability to do something like that. And I started going to another Calvary Chapel, and here's what I found. I liked the worship there, too. It was just a couple, it was a small worship team, and, and, and they were good, but it was small. It wasn't, they weren't as dynamic, and it wasn't as powerful. They didn't have all the lights and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it was, but it was still good. Well, a few years went by. I was working down in Fort Lauderdale, and I called Rebecca on the phone, and I said, Hey, honey, I'm going to uh, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I heard they're, they're having a night of worship tonight. And I'm down this way, so I'm going to skip dinner tonight. I'm going to go to the night of worship. I just want to spend some time with the Lord. Uh, I was serving in the church where, where we were a lot. And it's, I just, I, it was a big church. So I'm like, I can just go there. Nobody's going to know me. I can just worship. And I went there, and I spent the entire night there, and I came home. <coughs> and Rebecca said, how was the worship service? I said, it was terrible. She goes, what do you mean it was terrible? I go, it wasn't worship at all. It was a concert. And she goes, what do you mean? I go, the concert was amazing. It was unbelievable. The music, the, the voices, the, it was incredible, incredibly well done. But I wanted worship. I wanted just me and God. I wanted to close my eyes. I wanted to pray. I wanted to sing the songs. I didn't, I didn't want to have to keep my eyes open to see what was going to happen next, to see who was going to, who, who's coming out next. What's this? Who's this person? You know, I, I didn't want that. I just wanted a quiet night of worship. You see, when we begin looking for experiential worship, again, who are we focusing on? Ourselves. I want an experience during worship. I want to feel this way. I want to do that way. Those kind of worship, they're calculated. They want to bring you up. They want to bring you down. They want to bring you back up. You're going to take an offering, and they're going to bring you back down again. Or get ready for the message. Or however they do it for whatever service, it can be very, very, very calculated. Again, don't lump all churches into this category. Because any one of these things that we're talking about aren't wrong on their own. It's when the focus becomes on the experience and the entertainment rather than on the Lord. The third thing is, what would it look like if we were falsely worshiping the true God? We'd become idolatrous. We'd, become, we'd actually find ourselves, we could, we could find ourselves worshiping idols. You say, Rob, that's ridiculous. I would never worship an idol. That's stupid. I would never have a little thing that laying around my house that, that I, I would worship. I mean, they made these golden calves to represent God. We might look at it and say, well, that's just dumb. We've never, I don't have any golden calves sitting around my house. I'd never worship an idol. That just doesn't make any sense. Aren't there certain idols that we have in Christianity? What's, what's one of the greatest idols that we have in Christianity? I don't want to offend anybody. What's one of the greatest idols we have in Christianity today? What is it? The Pope? TV? What else? I'm going to give you one that you're not suspecting. How about the cross? How about the cross? The piece of wood, the tree that Jesus died on. The cross. You say, Rob, how dare you say that's an idol? No, the cross is nothing more than an instrument of death. It's, it's the method which the cru- the, our Savior was crucified on. It's the method that he died on. But we shouldn't worship the cross. Yet what do we have hanging around our necks? What do we have in our churches? What do we have in our homes? What do we have all of these things? And please understand, there's a difference between a a cross to remind you and and becoming, just because somebody has a cross doesn't mean they're worshiping it. Okay, understand there's a difference there. But sometimes if you've ever, if you've been around long enough, you've seen people worshiping the cross. I've seen people holding on to a cross, clinging to, you know, clinging to the old rugged cross. I'm going to grab the cross. It's all about the cross. It's not about the cross. It's about the man who died on the cross. His blood that stained that cross is what paid for your sins. That cross was just the method that he was killed by. And while we use the cross as a symbol to remind us, we need, there's nothing wrong with that, but be very, very careful. That symbol doesn't become an idol in your life. We think, oh, I'm going to run to the cross. 
Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He, he's, he's the one that we want to run to. I've watched people cling to it, literally in repentance. Clinging to a piece of wood. Clinging to it. Holding on to it. Oh, I need the cross. You don't need the cross. You need the Lord that died on the cross. And he's not on the cross anymore. He went to the grave and he's risen. He's alive. He's not dead. I'm not against the cross in church. I'm not against the cross on somebody's neck or in their home or hanging on the wall. We have them in, in our home and there's crosses in my office. I'm not against those at all. It's only a reminder. Don't let it become an idol. That's just one example. We do not worship the cross. We worship the one who died on the cross. But we can't hang him around our neck and we can't hang him somewhere on the wall. Yet as people, we want to put it into something tangible. Make your crosses reminders. Don't let it be the thing that you worship. And you can even say cross, Christians remembering our Savior's sacrifice. There you go. There's an acronym for you. So don't, you don't have to go throw them out. You don't have to go, oh, pastor said I got to get rid of my crosses. I couldn't believe he said that in church. No. But I will challenge you to check your heart and say, am I worshiping a cross more than I'm worshiping the one who died on the cross? Where does my true worship lie? Where does my heart really lie? Verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. You did what you were supposed to do, Ahab, so as a result of that, you're going to be blessed. To the fourth generation, your sons will sit on the throne. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. Jehu was a man who had zeal for the work of God, but when it came to the true worship of God, he didn't really care. Oh, I want to be part of the work of God. I want to be doing what God's doing. I want to do his work. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to, nah, not so much. Not so. He, he was indifferent to it. Listen, the true worship of God is the obedience to God. If you want to worship God, obey him and obey his word. Obey the word of God, and that is the true worship of God. He was strong against evil, but he didn't pursue what was good. He stood strong against what was evil. He stood strong against the house of Ahab, but he just stopped there. He just stopped there. He obeyed God as much as it personally benefited him. Think about that. As much as I get out of it. I, li I like wiping out Ahab's house. People are afraid of me. i got power. I'm on the throne. I like it. It's cool. But the worship of God? Eh, I don't have time for that. It doesn't really benefit me at all. Nobody outside sees that. I'm, I'm not interested in that. He had no desire to walk in the law of the Lord, but he wanted the appearance of spirituality. He wanted people to think he was a follower of the Lord God of Israel. He wanted people to think that. He was the guy who went to church. He volunteered to help out. He was the guy that people respected. But his heart was divided. His heart was divided. It wasn't sold out for the Lord. He didn't want to worship and approach the Lord like the Lord prescribed. Let's keep the golden calves around a little bit. We don't need to wipe them out. I mean, let's not, let's not go that far. It'd be pretty inconvenient for us to have to go all the way back to Jerusalem to worship again. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be, let's just keep that part of it. Let's keep them there. To walk in the law of the Lord of Israel meant to walk in obedience with all of your heart. He should have gotten rid of the golden calves. He should have 
return to the Lord and what the Lord had called him to do in worshiping in the way the Lord had called him to worship. Jehu had the appearance of being spiritual. He had the appearance of doing what was right. He had the people behind him, but he wasn't really into it unless it benefited him, unless he could get something out of it. What about you? What about you? When it's time to worship, when it's time to worship the Lord, is it more about you or is it more about him? Is it more about, I don't really like that song. Or, I really can't worship in that setting. Or, if you have a problem worshiping, the problem is not the music. It's not a worship team. The problem is in your heart. Jehu had a problem worshiping. He wanted to be around what God was doing, but he didn't have the connection with God that he should have had. He wasn't being obedient to the Lord. It was all about him. He was the one that wanted the recognition. He was the one that wanted to be on display. Are you looking for an experiential type of worship? Can you worship when nobody's around? Do you worship the same way when nobody's around, or do you worship differently when you're in church? Well, I want everybody to think I'm spiritual, so I'm going to raise my hands. Or I'm not going to raise my hands, they're not going to know. I don't want anybody to think I'm that spiritual. Those, those people are crazy. You know, I would never do that. How do you worship when you're alone? Do you worship alone? Or is the only worship you have is in church on Thursdays and Sundays? Do you spend time in worship with your creator? From time to time, I would encourage you to do that. Spend some time. Wake up with a song on your, in, your, in your heart. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. You don't have to be in church to worship. Drive down the street in your car. Turn the radio on. Put your favorite worship song on. You can pick the music. You can't even complain about the music. Pick whatever song you like. Just you and the Lord. Do you ever stand amazed at who he is and what he's done? Just you and him, nobody else around. I mean, it's great to come together corporately as a body and worship together. That's wonderful. And, and don't make a mistake of just because somebody doesn't have their hands up, they're less spiritual. Because I'm convinced that you can worship with your hands in your pocket or you can worship with your hands in the air. In, in, in the air. It doesn't make a difference. And if you can raise your hands for your favorite football team, you can certainly raise your hands for our creator. There's no problem with that at all in our, in our fellowship. I would say if you become distracting to the person next to you, we're going to ask you to tone it down. In other words, if the person next to you is worshiping and they have to look at you to go, what are they doing? We're going to come say, hey, tone it down. You're, get, you're distracting the person next to you. But as far as lifting your hands to the Lord, go ahead if that's what you feel led to. And if you're uncomfortable, then don't do it. It's okay either way. But it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter, it's a condition of your heart. Look what happens to the nation Israel since Jehu did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hazael, that's the king of Syria, conquered them in all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. All the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Does this sound familiar to you? You know what the land, you know what land they're talking about? This is the promised land. They, they've occupied this land since Joshua brought them in. And now they're losing it because they've left the Lord, because they're no longer following. Yeah, Jehu did okay. He had an appearance of spiritual, of being, he had an appearance of serving the Lord. But true, deep down, he wasn't serving the Lord. He was serving his own interests. He partnered with the people serving the Lord, so it would look like they were doing it together. But what was his true heart? Was it truly bringing the people back to the Lord? No, nah, not at all. And now they're losing the land of promise. Bit by bit, 
and piece by piece. Look at verse 34. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. The life of Jehu, it boils down to this. He carried out God's will, but he went too far. And he executed more people than God intended. Jehu carried out God's will, but he did it for personal glory and for pride. Jehu carried out God's will, but he only did it partially. He quit. He never really cleaned up the nation. He stopped the idolatry of Baal, but he continued in the sinful idolatry of Jeroboam. He never brought the people back to where they needed to be. May we not carry out God's will in our life partially. May you not quit early. Instead, may you walk faithfully till the day that you meet the Lord and hear those words that I hope that we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into your rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture, Lord. Sometimes it's hard to read about all the killing and all the the bloody mess and stuff that's going on there. But Lord, sometimes when we look at the big picture and we see the nation Israel and we see how we represent them, Lord, we, we, we can see how we do the same thing they do. We look at them and, and we want to laugh at them for, for being so foolish as putting up golden calves. But Lord, we can find ourselves worshiping for the wrong reasons. We can find ourselves with the wrong heart. And Lord, it's always good for us to come before you and say, Lord, will you search my heart? Will you let me know if there's anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? Nobody wakes up one day and decides they want to walk away from the Lord. It happens little by little, piece by piece. They had to falsely worship the true God before they came into the worship of the false God. Lord, if we're falsely worshiping you in any way, if we're looking for an experience, if we're looking, it's all about us, if we're, we're become idolatrous in any way, if there's something in our life that's an idol that we can't lay down, that it gets more of our time than you do. It gets more of our money than you do. It gets more of our effort and our, our talents than you do. If it's become an idol to us, Lord, would you show us? May we respond in obedience. May we repent and throw it away. Lord, it should be our desire to fulfill the calling of our life completely, not partially. I don't want to lose part of what you've called me to do. I don't want to get to heaven and look back and wonder what I missed if I'd only persevered. If I'd only thrown that thing away, if I'd only turned away from that worldly thing, 